Well, this is the day we've been dreading, and uh, as we've been letting you know, Jay's uh, last Sunday leading uh, up here, well, they may be here next Sunday, but uh, last Sunday leading, and uh, first we want to pray for him, and again, just uh, after that, show him our appreciation again. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness, and Lord, we, we know you're smarter than we are, and that you have a plan, and and like Jay was just saying, you've never failed us yet. And Father, we, we thank you for the, the five years of ministry that we've had with Jay sitting under as he leads us in worship. And Father, we, we pray that you would bless him and us during this transition. Lord, uh, we know that you're, you've got plans that, that we don't understand. You're smarter than we are. We get all that. And Lord, we trust you. And God, we thank you, Lord, for the friendships that we make along the way. And Father, we pray you'd bless him and his family, Aaron and the boys, Lord, that you take care of them and uh, make this transition work for your glory, your honor, for your kingdom. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Show them our appreciation. Love you, man. We're going to be doing that in three services today, and I don't think it's going to get any easier. It's harder and harder. Um, so much appreciate Jay's ministry over the years and what a blessing he's been to us and uh, what a blessing his family's been to us. Yeah, great stuff. And I know uh, that church and uh, the church where he's heading, the ministry that he's going to in Kentucky is going to be blessed. We're in a series, Viral, and we're talking about the church. And we're, we were talking about how it got started and how it spread like wildfire how God used ordinary people to make that happen. And so just these ordinary guys in Jerusalem, they start a movement that's, that rocks the world and has, is still rocking the world today. As God transforms people one heart at a time. And we're going to pick it up in Acts chapter 5. We left off in chapter 4 and as we get there, just to paint the picture, the church is, it's booming. It's 5,000 plus in Jerusalem. Uh, there's an energy and an excitement. And, uh, and as people have become Christians, uh, it's, it's opened their heart to be connected in a church like family. And they become outrageously generous and start sharing with each other. And before we get to Acts 5, I'd like to set the context by setting that up by a few verses at the end of Acts 4. And when we get to Acts 5, we're going to talk about one of the strangest events that happened in the church, but we'll get to that in just a moment. Pick it up in Acts chapter 4, uh, beginning verse 34. It says, For there was not a needy person among them, 
for all who are owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each one as had any need. So we get this picture here. It's a unified church. They feel like they're, they're family, and they are. And people that had more resources were able to sell some of those resources. They would bring uh, monies in from those sales, bring it, give it to the apostles. Then the apostles would distribute it to other people who had needs within the church family. Verse 36. Now Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, and who owned a tract of land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. First mention, I think, of Barnabas. Barnabas is mentioned, I think, six times throughout Acts. And he's an amazing guy. It's interesting because he's the first regular guy we get to know in the early church. The first guy that's not a disciple. And what he's doing is, as we look at how he shows up and asks, first of all, he's, he, he leads in his generosity. Later, he's going to show up and, and when Paul or Saul is converted and becomes Paul, he becomes a believer. Remember, he had persecuted the church. And so the church is afraid. They don't want anything to do with Paul. And it's Barnabas that goes and brings Paul in and says, hey, give this guy a chance. God's changed his life. Come on. And, and that happens later when, when, they, when the Jewish, mostly Jewish church realizes they need to, to go out to the Gentiles. It's Barnabas that spearheads some of that. Later in Acts, when, when Paul and Barnabas are on a missionary journey and they have John Mark with them, and John Mark bails. And then later, John Mark changes his mind and comes back, and Paul says, no thanks. Don't need you anymore. We know we, you've showed us who you are. And Barnabas is like, no, give him a second chance. It's okay, let's take him. And, and that leads to them splitting into two teams. Paul takes Silas, Barnabas takes John Mark, and they spread the gospel. Just ordinary people doing amazing things. And that brings us to chapter 5. So the church is rocking. Everything's going great. And then what's the next word? But. You know, all right. Acts 5, beginning of verse 1. But. A man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge, and bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back some of the price of the land? For while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it? That you have conceived this deed in your heart. You have not lied to men, but to God. So, what's wrong? What's happening here? Well, he sells the land, but he's not honest about it. Was the problem that he kept back some of the money? No, that's perfectly fine. That's what Peter's saying. 
Hey, you didn't have to sell the land, but you did. You didn't have to give the money. You didn't have to give all the money. You didn't have to do any of this. There's no requirements here. There's no obligation. Why, why would you do that? It continues, and, and as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came over all who heard of it. The young men got up and covered him, covered him up, and after carrying him out, they buried him. So, boom, instant judgment. The young men, that's the interns. You know, that's, that's, that's why we say, yeah, we need interns around because they get the dirty jobs. Same thing. It's the same thing back then. We, we got Hannah now. We probably wouldn't have her do that. But uh, that's what's going on. Just Verse 7. And now there elapsed an interval of about three hours. And his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter responded to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. And probably everybody there is going, I mean, what, what would you do? You know, they're probably going, she doesn't know. Should we say something? Or what? And Peter just asks her, and I guess the question is, wives, what would you do? I mean, this is your husband's idea, right? But you signed up for it. And, and so now you're being asked, and you realize Although it was deceitful what you did, now you're going to just straight up and lie about it. And, and, and a lot of times, I think women might have the, or wives specifically, might have the idea that, well, if my husband's you know, doing this, I'm to be submissive. Submission is never going against God. You can never appeal to submission to do something that you know God doesn't want you to do. That's not biblical submission. And all of us, wives, there's a day that you will stand before God alone and be accountable for your actions. That's going to happen to all of us, even as believers. We stand before God, judgment seat of Christ, and we give an account individually of how we lived our life, how generous we were, how, we con how well we controlled our tongue, how well we raised our children to follow God, how well we um, got involved in God's mission to change the world. We're all accountable that way. And, and there's something for us men to learn here too, especially husbands. Your sin, our, my sin and your sin as men, it will affect our families it will affect our wives. It will affect our children. We, we just need to know that. We cannot sin in a vacuum. It will hurt the people that we love. So the question's out there. And then last part of verse 8 there. And she said, yes, that was the price. Then Peter said to her, why is it that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out as well. And immediately she fell at his feet and breathed her last, and the young men came in and found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came over the whole church 
and over all who heard of these things. So, just want to work through this, ask a couple of quick questions. First of all, why did they do what they did? Why did Ananias and Sapphira do what they did? Which is huge because you just... And, and then it's, why did God kill them on the spot? Why did he take their life like that, strike them dead, boom, right there? And then how that relates to us. So first question is, why did they do what they did? And this is all about motivation, right? Because, again, we learn from what Peter's saying, they didn't have to do it. it. It wasn't a requirement. They could have been honest and not sold the land or sold the land and kept some of the money and gave some of the money. That would have been totally okay, but that's not what they did. And what's going on? What's the motivation here? What's happening here is Ananias and his wife Sapphira, they love the praise of people and they love money. So they want both. So they, they want the praise of people. So they, they get that because of what Barnabas did, maybe. They get that by being extraordinarily generous. But because they also love money, they want to look more generous than they actually are. So they pretend, they deceive everybody that they gave the whole amount, but really they kept some back. There, there's no reason to do that except for the love of the praise of people and the love of money working on their heart. So that's the why of it. That's the motivation. And if you're filled with the love of the praise of people and you're filled with the love of money, you cannot be filled with the Spirit. Because when we're filled with the Spirit... We love people, and we love God, and we, we, we want to live our lives out in a way that honors God and respects God, and, are, and we're characterized by contentment, satisfaction, and still radical generosity. So next question is, why'd God strike him dead? This is unprecedented in the New Testament. It's the only time this happens. Why Why'd God do it? And by the way, were they Christians? Don't know for sure, but they're part of the church. We would assume yes, they, they probably were. So, and why is God disciplining them then so severely? I mean, God doesn't do that today, right? Could you imagine? Anytime you tell a lie, God strikes you dead in the church. I mean, I'm still here, you're still here, right? It's unusual. You know, why, why would that happen? Why did God do it? And, and as we dig into that, there may be several reasons. But first of all, we understand that Ananias and Sapphira, they thought they could hide from God. They thought they could sort of put one over on the people and, and, and also God. I remember... When I was in high school, I didn't really have a curfew. My dad, who, who ruled with an iron fist, my dad would just say, I don't care when you come home, I just want to know where you're at and when you'll be home. Where you're at and when you... For some reason, I just never had the guts to say, hey, dad, I'll be downtown with Scott until 3 a.m., you know, I, I always kind of cut, because it sounded a little ridiculous. So I, even though he said it doesn't matter, 
I wasn't sure about that, but it's just, I just need to know where you're at and when to expect you home. So if something's wrong, I know what's going on. And so I'd always cut it back. I could probably make it home by 1230, and I was late a lot. And uh, I remember one time when I was extra late, and the stakes were a little higher. And I came, but we didn't have cell phones back then, by the way. So it was a lot harder for parents to track their kids. And basically, pre-cell phone, it was like this. If your parents fell asleep and you could get in quiet enough, you're golden. So I was operating on that principle. But this time, I was really, really, I don't even remember what I was doing, but I was really, really, really late. And so I took the added precaution that I normally didn't do, that I took my shoes off at the door. Came in the door, our floor was kind of squeaky, I'm holding my shoes, and I'm tiptoeing across our dark house, because the floor's kind of creaky. And as I'm tiptoeing through the house and getting ready to head down the stairs, there's stairs up to my parents' room, and I'm heading down to the basement, as, as I head down there, I think I hear breathing. <laughs> and I turn, and my dad, who's a large man, was standing on the first step his face was this far from me. I'm, and I'm, no kidding, just like the cartoons, I'm like this. And I, ah! I mean, that just freaked me out. The weird thing is, you know, I don't know when I was coming in, 115, 130. I could have just said, hey, Dad, I'll be home at 115. I don't think he would have cared. It just, you know, I'm thinking, well, that doesn't really sound reasonable. What, what would I be doing at 1 o'clock? And again, I don't remember what I was doing. But that's kind of what's going on here. It's like Ananias and Sapphira, they think they can sneak one past God. That God won't notice. That we'll, we'll just get in and wake up in the morning and everything's good. But it doesn't happen that way. God judged swiftly. Because they had lied. Their deceit showed that, that they were really belittling God. They weren't respecting God. They were just acting like he won't even notice. So that's one thing. Another reason, and again, there may be many, is just that it served to warn and purify the church. That's the first time Luke uses the word church. And, and we're remembering it. Church was birthed from God. Church is the bride of Christ. The church means something to God. God loves his church, and he wants it to be different from the world. And then notice also Satan's mentioned in this story, that Satan filled their heart. And we're reminded by that, that yeah, God loves his church, but there are cosmic forces arrayed against the church then and today. And we just need to be aware of that. It's a warning against anything that takes away from the love, the honesty, the unity that God wants in his church, then and now. And then last question. So, if that, that's the motivation, and that's why maybe God did what he did, or some of the reason, then the last thing is, well, what do we learn? What do we learn today? What's our takeaway from this? One interesting thing is this seems to parallel uh, an event that happened in the Old Testament. And if you'll think back with me, back when Israel was, was released from Egypt, they, they got out of Egypt and they were wandering in the desert and then, it was, and then Moses died and Joshua was taking them into the promised land. And if you remember, the first city that they come in contact with is a fortified city called Jericho. 
And God miraculously helps him deliver Jericho. So all of a sudden they're in, they conquer Jericho, they're, they're on a high, everything's going good. And then there's a small town nearby called Ai. And so the next step is to go get this little town, but they're thinking, well, we don't need to take all the people over for this little town. It'd be like if a foreign army came in and conquered Cleveland, and then they came on, and, and the whole army just, you know, maybe half a, half a million men or something, they're like, ah, we'll just send a few thousand to wipe out Clyde. You know, kind of that thinking. But then what happens is, so they send, send 3,000 men to take on this little bitty city, Ai, and all of a sudden, they get whipped. They get beat back because you don't mess with Clyde. They, they just get, they get wiped out. And so they come back and all the people, they're going, what? And Joshua's going, God, what? What's going on? We, we should have easily, 3,000 men, it's a little bitty town. What are you doing? And then God says, there's sin. There's sin in the camp. There's sin amongst the people. And, and Joshua's like, well, what do we do with it? And he says, well, here's what you're going to do tomorrow I'm going to have all the people assemble, and then I'm going to pick out, I'm going to tell you where this sin's at, because that's what Joshua wants to know. Who's, who's done this terrible thing? Because God gave them a bunch of rules about not taking any plunder. And so the next morning, they assemble the people, and God picks the tribe of Judah. All the tribes are there, tribe of Judah. And then God says, and then send the, the, the clans of Judah by, and then he picks the clan, and then the families of the clan and he picks the family, and then the men of the family, and it comes down to this one guy, Achan. And Achan says, yes, I've sinned. And, and they go look in his tent, and they uncover the floor, and here he has buried the plunder, what God specifically told the people not to do. And so Achan is, is killed. He's, he's judged for that. And, but here's the thing that I want us to catch. Achan looked like any other soldier in the Jewish army. But he had something in his heart. He looked like everybody else, but there was something buried in his tent that no one knew about. And really, it's the same for us. Same with Ananias and Sapphira. They probably look like everybody else at church, but God knows their heart, and God knew that there was sin in their life. God knew that they had something buried in their tent. And the question is, what do you have buried in the tent? I obviously don't know. I got my own stuff to deal with. But the point is, God knows. And sometimes we act like he doesn't, but... He, but he knows our heart. God knows our heart. The Spirit of God knows our every thought, our every action. We must look into our own heart, our own hearts. For example, on this issue, from this passage in Acts 5, we look in our own hearts and say, okay, are we more like Barnabas or are we more like Ananias and Sapphira? And we have to look in our hearts on every area of our life. Generosity, the love of the praise of people, and every other thing. Because God knows our heart, and sometimes the love of the praise of people will cause us to do things 
that, that we won't even stop and think that are actually an offense to God. God knows our heart. And then the next thing is that fear is a part of worship. Fear keeps popping up in this passage. The reaction is fear. Fear is a part of worship. And me saying that might be a little bit of an unusual idea to you. But it's it's true. God alone is worthy to be worshipped. And we do that. We worship him by living for him. We worship him in spirit, in truth. We worship him by bowing our hearts in submission to him. We worship him by giving. We worship him by singing about him, singing his praises, singing his glory, singing and praising him for who he is. That's all part of our worship. And we worship him in humility. We worship him out of humility gratitude, and also fear. And when I say that, I know some people, whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, I've been hanging around a little bit, and I I thought God just oozed love like a cosmic grandparent that kind of winked when when the kids were misbehaving, that he just oozed love, that everything was good. Now, fear is a part of worshiping God. We have to have an understanding of God's holiness. He is infinite in love, but to love God back, we cannot even fully love God if we don't fear him. We cannot love God like we should love God if we have not learned to fear him for who he is, his holiness, his purity, his righteousness. And the seriousness of our sin. I think many people have never really learned to love God. Because you've never learned to fear God. Remember the song? Probably the most well-known Christian song is Amazing Grace. John Newton. Remember how that went? Was grace that taught my heart to, and grace my fears relieved. You see, it's both sides. Grace taught my heart to fear. That's that awesome respect and reverence for God, and grace my fears relieved. Later in Acts 9, there's, there's a passage that talks about this a little bit. It's Acts 9.31. Listen to this. It says, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria, now it's expanded by Acts 9, enjoyed peace being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It continued to increase. You see the two sides? The fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. We see, that's how we love God. By understanding him in his holiness and also understanding what an affront our sin is to God and also understanding that he's offering us forgiveness at a steep, steep price unless we understand his holiness and we learn to fear him, we can't appreciate the love that he has for us. 
And if you find God's swift judgment in Acts chapter 5 is, is kind of offensive. It's, it's because you're not understanding God's holiness and his righteousness and the seriousness of our sin. Really, the question isn't, why did they die? The question is, why does God allow us to live? Because we live lives, even as believers, where our sin is an affront to God. And, and he actually tells us this in Scripture, why he allows us to live. Scripture says because he's patient, not wanting any to perish. Scripture's telling us God's patient to give us time in order to come to a place of repentance. In order to come to him and clean our hearts and, and confess our sin and repent and and ask God for help to go a different direction. But here's the problem we have. Because God doesn't strike down people in the church today. Sometimes we can use his patience and his grace... to do the wrong things. And when we do that, we presume upon the grace of God. And as believers, when we do that, if we do that consistently, then we should expect God's discipline because God says he'll discipline his own, Hebrews chapter 12. And when we do that, we're dishonoring him. So we have this, this event and maybe the best thing for us is, is to read about this and understand what happened and then apply it to our lives in this way. What sin are we concealing in our hearts? What area of our life as a Christian is an affront to God? What area in our life are we indulging in or rebelling in and, and maybe nobody knows but us? But God knows. He sees everything. And he knows your every motivation. And the question is, when will we come back? When will we stop presuming upon his grace and come back and ask for forgiveness? That's what 1 John 1.9 is telling us about. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Maybe today's the day that we just need to remember to come back to the one who knows us perfectly because we cannot hide anything from him and still loves us more than we can ever imagine. Come back to him.
Let's stand together for prayer. Father God in heaven, we thank you for your, your grace, your love that you offer lavishly. And God, sometimes when that's all we focus on, we can get caught up in living in a such a way that, that presumes upon your grace. And God, help us not to do that. Father, I pray that through your spirit, you would help us search our own hearts individually, realizing that we are accountable and we will be judged for our actions, not, not for our salvation. That, that's only by grace and that's set as a believer. But we'll still be accountable for everything we do as a believer. And Father, we pray that you'd help us to get that right now. And help us to not have any part of our life that we're trying to keep hidden from you and others. Lord, that we would deal with it before you will deal with it. Give us that wisdom, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks for being here at Grace. We'll continue um, in our series viral next week, and I hope to see you then. You're dismissed. Thanks. Thanks.